Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experience the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And this season, we're looking at Steel City Outsiders and the Institutional Avant-Garde. Or... Or the story of how Oakland, our neighborhood here in Pittsburgh, emerged as an unlikely center for avant-garde and experimental arts in the 1970s. During this time, Pittsburgh prided itself on its blue-collar nature, a work ethic born in the flames of the steel mills and reflected in its successful sports teams. But still, people were craving new art forms, like experimental filmmaking, abstract sculpture, and computer-generated art. This was fueled, at least in part, by social and political tensions, but also newly available technology, like video cameras and computers, the kinds of things that we tend to take for granted now. So, this season, we are diving into stories about how this happened, as told by the people who were actually there. They're stories about starting something new, about not necessarily having a plan or funding, but finding a way to do it anyway. These are stories about finding belonging and community and forging new creative forms. We're talking about avant-garde film, we're talking about punk, we're talking about electronic art, we're talking about how computers changed art and music and arts communities themselves. So all of this activity happened in Oakland, which is CMU's neighborhood, where we are sitting right now. Yep, and maybe we should explain what Oakland is for folks who haven't been here. Yeah, uh, so what is Oakland? Well, I know that CMU isn't technically part of Oakland, wait, but... Wait, <laughs> what's that now? I think technically it's part of Squirrel Hill. Oh, the things you learn <laughs> when making a podcast... But CMU definitely influences the neighborhood, and the neighborhood influences it. There's an exchange. So what do you what do you think of when you think of Oakland? Well, there are two main roads running through the neighborhood. You have Fifth Avenue, and then Fifth Avenue connects much of the University of Pittsburgh campus, and then you have Forbes Avenue. Wait, across Forbes Avenue. And Forbes Avenue is really what takes you to CMU. But in between, you have chaos. You have traffic. You have coffee shops. You have restaurants. You have lots of students, lots of energy, interesting smells. (laughs) It feels very urban. I feel like all those things came together one day when I was outside of Central Catholic and I was pelted by an egg. I experienced the smell, the wind, the traffic. It was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, add into that mix all of the potholes and construction, constant construction on the roads and the buildings. And all the sirens and the helicopters. And and what else is there? I think uh, WQED is in Oakland. That's right. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah, a beloved childhood classic. Absolutely. You also have uh, the museums, Carnegie Museum of Art and the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. So Oakland is really an education and cultural center for Pittsburgh. It feels really different whether it's day or night. I feel like nighttime, South Oakland, you hear uh, the sounds of parties, people drinking before they're of age. (laughs) (laughs) Students getting into trouble. (laughs) Right, right. But yeah, there's kind of an electricity about the neighborhood, uh, uh, a tension between students and long-term residents. Yeah, tension between residents and institutions too. Right. Because we also have the UPMC hospital system, which is based in Oakland. It's constantly expanding and building and constructing and buying up property. I find it a really inspiring place too, just because the buildings are massive there and they're of such a specific architectural quality. It's like no other place in Pittsburgh. It feels very grand. Yeah. You know, it feels like there's a, a bigger plan at work there. 
the buildings are huge. They're there to be impressive. They're not just there to fulfill functions. They're there to make you feel the power of the institutions that make up Oakland. But then on the other hand, you have the park. That's uh, Shenley Park. Which is a really interesting contrast to the rest of Oakland. The park can be a very peaceful place. It can be a very beautiful place. Big trees, grass, you know, trails that you can walk on. It's a little escape for Oakland. And I think without Shenley Park, Oakland would feel really overwhelming. But you can still find these little pockets to kind of get away from the noise, get away from the imposing institutions and breathe a little cleaner air, maybe. <laughs> Well, that is Oakland. So how do we want to start this season? How about a story? Oh, perfect. What kind of story? I'd like to start with one of my favorite people who started something big in Oakland. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Filmmakers series. Her name is Sally Dixon, and she started what became the film section at Carnegie Museum of Art. Let's go oh, with it. I'd, I'd love to tell the story that he and I had in this place. <gasps> so, Sally, will you tell us about Hollis Frampton in Pittsburgh and Apparatus Sum? Hollis Frampton and I had this incredible day. And, you know, what he wanted to do, he wanted to go to the university where they were teaching doctors how to deal with bodies, dead bodies type things. And so uh, I called, the, I called the, <laughs> them and they said, yes, bring him over, we'll close it and it can be empty for you two to go through so he can film what he wants. So we did that and they had what? About 10 dead bodies on all of these uh, long things. They were all cut open so you were seeing uh, their heads, their legs, their arms, but this part was open because that's what those... They're uh, doing an autopsy. Yes, exactly. And lo and behold, we started, he started filming his way around the room. And we got to one of the women on the other side and we both looked at her and she looked happy. She looked still alive. It was amazing. It was as if her soul was there, as if she was still living. Amazing. She was dead, she was cut open, but there she was quite different from all of the others. And he and I looked at each other and asked, said, are you seeing this? Are you seeing the life continuing to come out of her? And we both agreed. That's what we were seeing. It was amazing. It was an amazing day in there. And we left. He filmed her. And then we left and we held, our, we held hands on the way out because we were so deeply moved by that thing. We didn't want to let it go. Right. We had seen it. We had felt it. It was amazing. Oh, that's a great story. Uh, it sounds adventurous, and like Sally was really part of the filmmaking process. She really was. She was a filmmaker herself, but she also worked at the Art Museum here in Pittsburgh. So full disclosure, for two years, I worked as an archivist at Carnegie Museum of Art, processing the film section's historic records. And man, I have to tell you, Sally is awesome. She started something there that would go on to influence not just the film scene in Pittsburgh, but arts more broadly. So who is Sally? Well, Sally was born in Seattle in 1932, but later moved to Pittsburgh. She came from a well-to-do family, and her father, Fred Foy, led the Copper's Chemical Company. If you're downtown, you can actually still see the Art Deco building that's named after it. Foy was well-known around the city, and he served on the board of both CMU, our university, and the Carnegie Institute. 
Do you mean the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh? Yep, that's the one. The parent organization of Carnegie Museum of Art, Carnegie Museum of Natural History, and back then, Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. Later, when she was older, Sally took art classes at CMU, back when it was known as Carnegie Institute of Technology. So she's an alum. Oh, there's a lot of things named after Carnegie. <laughs> that really is. <laughs> so after all that, is that when Sally got into film? She didn't really get involved in the film community until much later. She married, had children, and divorced in her 30s. Well, I got into film. It's where I was living. I was out in the country. I was given a little film. So I was filming my sons, these little little boys. I was, I was filming. You were making movies. I was making movies, exactly. And I was loving doing it. Not only was I drawing and painting, I was photographing and filming. By the late 1960s, she had an interest in filmmaking. And I don't mean Hollywood films. I'm talking non-narrative, unconventional filmmaking. The kind that wasn't common, especially among society folks of the day. So we're talking films like Warhol's Empire, which was an eight-hour slow-motion shot of the Empire State Building. And Yoko Ono's Fly, which was a fly crawling across a person's breast. Oh, and the, uh, the bum one, the just shot after shot of people's behinds. Uh, maybe Stan Brackage's Moth Light, where Brackage taped pieces of moths directly onto the film strip, resulting in a chaotic but somehow, I'd say, a serene montage. Yep, exactly. So during the late 1960s, Dixon had this idea. You know, I wasn't the only one making films in Pittsburgh. I was working at the museum at that point, doing prints and drawings for them, but not this, not these other things, because it was, it was several of the other people in Pittsburgh who were also making films. So we started our own. What do we call it? Like a cooperative? Or? Yes, and we, we rented a little room. I took a little rug, and we sat on the floor, and we looked at films. We looked at what we thought were wonderful films. We all began making little films to show one another. Sadly, we don't have an oral history interview with Sally, who passed away in 2019. But the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis spoke with her, so for this episode, we'll be using clips from that interview. So it wasn't just Sally who was interested in avant-garde filmmaking in Pittsburgh. Yeah, there were other folks too. Yeah, a few weeks back, I spoke with Ben Ogrodnik. My name is Ben Ogrodnik. An assistant professor of art at Del Mar College. A community college located in Corpus Christi which is in South Texas, along the coastal bend, right by the Gulf of Mexico. Oh yeah, I remember Ben from my days working at the museum. He was in Pittsburgh a number of years ago researching Sally Dixon, the film section, and other film activities in Pittsburgh. So in the late 60s, all around the United States, young people, the baby boomers, were discovering film as something they could make independently of the commercial Hollywood studios. Actually, a lot of people in the late 60s and early 70s really disliked Hollywood. The mainstream movies weren't really connecting with audiences, and experimental film was also really taking off. The bastion of experimental film in the 60s was probably New York City. And films being made in New York, as well as in San Francisco, started trickling into Pittsburgh because... There were micro cinemas, which are just kind of DIY screening spaces where people gather their friends, maybe get a few beers and show movies for very, very cheaply. And there were people like Charles Glassmeyer. He started the screening series at the Crumbling Wall, which was a Lutheran coffee shop in Oakland. And he was showing movies by so-called underground filmmakers, movies that featured psychedelic visuals and oftentimes a lot of nudity, a lot of illicit subject matter that you couldn't see on TV or in Hollywood productions. And there were others who decided they wanted to make films and not just screen them. They wanted to express themselves through the moving image, 
So Charles Glassmeyer started the Crumbling Wall in 1967. It's funny, the coffee shop was opened in 1965, and there's a Pitt News article that touted it as a version of the European student coffee houses. Opening hours at that time were 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Yeah, and it was located at 4515 Forbes Avenue near Craig Street. Nobody at that time knew, you know, what an experimental film was. That is Charles Glassmeyer. People knew about Hollywood, but the students got very excited. Part of it was uh, these films often had uh, female nudity, and that, of course, <laughs> was, was always, uh, you know, a big topic of interest. And not not just for the nudity, I make a joke, but uh, it was a really avant-garde kind of creativity, which we had not seen anywhere in the commercial filmmaking business. And I would go one night a week, and starting around 6.30 in the evening, as I recall, and I would show some uh, short experimental films. And they really were made by some very creative artists, people like uh, Jonas Mikas and uh, Ed M. Schwiller, and the list just goes on and on. There were a number of slightly offbeat screenings at the Crumbling Wall. Under the banner of the new Pittsburgh Film Group, they showed Andy Warhol's My Hustler and George Kachar's Hold Me While I'm Naked in February 1968. The following week featured a three-hour film commentary on the Vietnam War by a group called the Angry Arts Group. The show featured films by Shirley Clark and Storm DeHirsch, among others. It was $1 to see the film and $0.50 cents for a membership to the film group. I just set up a projector in the back of the of the room, Crumbling Wall was just a little coffee house. You know, there was a main room with some tables and people would order coffee and goodies and that, that's about all there was. Sometimes people would have questions and uh, sometimes people would uh, would talk and they'd get all excited. So, But anyway, I was renting those films. I was paying for the rentals myself, but... Uh, uh, luckily, I was still financially in decent shape. I was a, I had been paid as an engineer for a long time. So, in addition to Charles Glassmeyer showing films at the Crumbling Wall, there was another place showing avant-garde cinema, called the New Cinema Workshop. Back to Ben Ogradnik. So there was a person named Willard Van de Bogart who established a workshop. That was an early filmmaking space where you could exchange ideas and share equipment. He founded a workshop called the New Cinema Workshop in Shadyside, I believe on Ellsworth Avenue. This was 1968. And he created this environmental film chamber. He called it a film chamber where you could experience movies as a completely 360 degree environmental installation. He created a special film projector for this. He got some fame for it, but there was a lot of energy and excitement. People wanted to make films. One quick side note. I found a few advertisements in Pitt News, which is the University of Pittsburgh's daily student newspaper, stating that you could buy advance tickets at Gimbel's, Horns, and Kaufman's. Ah, Kaufman's. <laughs> so a few people put their heads together and said, we need to have a more sustainable, long-lasting source of resources to build up an audience for the stuff we want to see and that we want to make. So it sounds like by this time, the community had some momentum. Yeah, and around this time, Sally brings it up with the director at CMOA. And then, when I was working at the museum, and the, the director came through, and I said, we should start a film department here. This is, the tw this is the, the 20th century art form. We should have this. We should be doing this. And he said, oh, go ahead and start it if you want. <laughs> oh, so Sally got permission to start the program just like that? Yeah, that's what she said. Just like that. Wow. Yeah. Well, remember, Sally was well-connected. Her father was on the board of the Institute. And even before this, Sally organized screenings through the Women's Committee at Carnegie Museum of Art. In 1968, they hosted the Kinetic Film Series at the museum. 
They screened programs of short films. It was a mix of foreign films and non-Hollywood films. So Sally had been working toward this for a while, but still it seemed like it was relatively easy. Yeah, that's the way Sally recalled it. I guess she was both charismatic and well-connected. Huh. So thanks to Sally, the local avant-garde film community had a direct line to Pittsburgh's major art museum. So imagine the kind of impact this had on the community. These kinds of films and this kind of filmmaking was still a new thing. Like Ben said, it was happening in New York, it was happening in the Bay Area, but somehow, of all the cities in the U.S., Pittsburgh was becoming a spot to see these films. Think about it. You could see these in a coffee house late at night or at the storefront in Shadyside. These were DIY establishments. And this was not mainstream. It was not well-established. That is, until Sally started the film section. And if you look at it from the filmmaker side, these films were hard to make. Remember, this is not video. Filmmakers were not lining up digital video files on a computer. Film is a physical medium. You have to develop the film. That involves a series of chemicals to fix the image. Then, to edit, you have to take a razor and splice together these bits of film. It was very expensive and time-intensive. This was an analog process. I'm, I'm curious if you have a thought on why people were ready for experimental film at that time. So the late 60s, we typically think of uh, civil rights movements. We think about the women's movement, gay liberation. The 1960s was a time of radical transformation in the United States, and it was young people that were transforming institutions, right? Like people were fed up with local government, federal government. Women also had access to contraception. They were able to control their reproductive health. There was a lot of, I don't know, intellectual ferment in United States mainstream and kind of the counterculture simultaneously. I think the most influential person who inspired creativity in film might be Marshall McLuhan, who, you know, was a, was a media theorist who came up with a, a book called uh, The Medium is the Massage, or, you know, most people understand him as saying the medium is the message, but he envisioned the entire world turning into this electronic global village. He, he uh, died before the internet was created. He died in 1980, but he imagined uh, through his writing, essentially what the internet would eventually become. And Sally Dixon was extremely well-educated and understood that she could borrow some of his ideas to further stimulate people's interest in new kinds of moving images. NYU was the earliest American college to have a film production program, but in the 60s and 70s, almost everywhere in the United States, kids were making films on college campuses. And there were film societies in local colleges. In Pittsburgh, we had at the University of Pittsburgh, a film society called the Franklin Pangborn Film Society, which would draw crowds of hundreds of people to watch movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Every week they would have screenings of repertory film or foreign film. There were all these movies that were coming in from Europe. The new wave filmmakers, especially the French new wave, excited people. It was just a really robust period of time where the technology was widely available and affordable. So people were making films with 16 millimeter film. Also later on in the 70s, early 80s, uh, Super 8 film would become really popular. It's very similar to how we use uh, social media today. People began to understand film could be a way of 
just reflecting their their lives. They didn't need to create stories around it. You could explore artistic ideas. You could investigate political problems that you cared about. All of these things are not new to us, but they were new, I think, in the 60s. I remember going through the documents in the archive at Carnegie Museum of Art, and Sally was a real force of nature. There are these great letters between Sally and filmmakers and administrators at the museum. She rarely took no for an answer. It was great. She really went out of her way to help out filmmakers. She wanted to make sure they got paid. She was really interested in uh, providing resources and support to them. She was involved in the Carnegie Museum, and she was a very charismatic young woman who persuaded a lot of the men that ran these organizations that she would be able to convince the Carnegie Museum of Art to have a film series that would showcase all the films that they loved coming out of San Francisco and New York City. So the 1960s had all these interesting things going on, but it culminated in 1969, which was the year when Sally Dixon submitted a proposal for the film section which was the museum film program that was established at Carnegie Museum of Art in 1970. So Sally Dixon wrote this this film proposal, which talks about how film technology has the potential to expand the sensorium of the human species. The, The proposal is really crazy because it it speaks about film in really lofty terms. Like she sounds like Marshall McLuhan talking about how, how technology will become a prosthetic enhancement of, of the human mind. And just reading uh, the pages of that proposal, you feel excitement like, wow, this really will <laughs> lead to some kind of global revolution. This film section proposal sounds like quite a document. It is. And if folks want to check it out, they can visit the archives at CMOA, where they still have an original copy. But she did quite a bit of research to write it. That's interesting. This kind of avant-garde filmmaking at that time was pretty new. How did she do research on something that was so fresh? Well, she went to New York City. So I flew off to New York. Where MoMA had it. It was called Cineprobe. Talked to them about it. Wanted to know what they were paying. And he said, well, we bring them here and uh, uh, we buy them a hotel room. They, I think, paid like $150 honorarium to artists that came through. And of course, I I told them that uh, they were paying the writers, the drawers, and the all of the others, but not the film people. And I said, well, I would, because it's costing them so much to make those films. We have to do that. I have to do that. I'll do that. Sally Dixon decided she was going to one-up them and paid artists $500, which, you know, if you calculate the amount of money, considering inflation and whatnot, in the early 1970s, that is a a lot of money. So that's equivalent to $3,500 today. That's a good amount. Yeah, Sally really wanted to create a program that could support artists. So 1969 was a big year for her. She spent time traveling around New York City, talking with folks about how to set things up, seeing what worked and what she could improve. That led her to filmmaker Jonas Mikas. Was Jonas Mikas an advisor to you on this enterprise? Yes, he was. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly he was. Not only did I talk to the director at the museum, But then I had already called him and made for a meeting with him. And he was wonderful. And he invited me to the party that night. And I met all these others, ones from Europe as well. So that when I did start the film department, and I was wanting films from other countries, I was doing the history of film and then the current really good filmmakers from all over the world and the avant-garde filmmakers. So he introduced me to a number of those and they invited me to come over and do it. So it went. 
So in our story, Sally is back in Pittsburgh. It's 1970, and the film section at the Carnegie Museum of Art officially launches. And on April 1st, they held their first screening with Jonas Mikas himself. It was a screening and lecture combination, showing a two-hour excerpt from Diaries, Notes, and Sketches, Volume 1. Uh, many refer to him as the patron saint of the new American cinema. Personally, when I tried to get this program going, there was no one who helped me more, almost taking me by the hand to a bookstore and telling me what books to get. So I'm most grateful. And uh... Most of the film was shot in New York, and it featured segments with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Mikas gave an informal talk about the film and talked about a new American cinema. The same year, he would go on to found Anthology Film Archive in New York City. With great pleasure, I give you Mr. Mikas. This was the beginning of what would become a staple for the film section, hosting a filmmaker each month for screenings and artist talks. Sally arranged their travel, organized press conferences, and found them housing, even opening up her three-story Victorian in Shadyside, which is a neighborhood near Oakland, for filmmakers to stay while they were in town. She cooked for them and showed them around the city. That's so cool. Yeah, this is definitely my favorite time period from this history. The film section hit its stride, and experimental filmmakers from all over come to Pittsburgh to hang out, get inspired, and share their work. There was so much energy. Sally also helped filmmakers make films in Pittsburgh. Totally. Remember that story of Sally with Hollis Frampton in the morgue? Well, that wasn't the only example. Sally also helped Stan Brackage, known for painting directly on film strips, get into some exclusive locations. Well, you know, it was really interesting because Brackage was one of the first people I had, and Frampton also, but when they both got there, they asked if by any chance I could get them permission to film somewhere in Pittsburgh. And I said, of course we could. You know, we're the museum. Uh, I mean, if they're willing. And if they're not willing, they can say no. And then you'll know you can't film there. But uh, I said, just tell me where you want to, when you want to do this and where you want to do it. And so they, both of them, these two that I have right here, Stan Brackage and Hollis, Hollis Frampton. Frampton, told me what they wanted to do. Well, Hollis Frampton, first of all, said he was into dealing with life and death. In other words, life arriving at death. All right, well, Brackage heard that too, and he liked that idea. So Brackage asked me first, and, and, and this darling boy, a young man, young man in those days, was working for me also. Was writing, yes, and was writing for the paper. He was the paper writer. Michael Chikiris worked for the Pittsburgh Press, which was one of two main Pittsburgh newspapers at that time. And he was always given anything he wanted to go film, to, to write up and give back to the paper. So he talked with Brackage, and Brackage said he'd really like to, could, would it be possible to drive with the police? And he said, yes, you can go with me, I'll, I'll get permission for that. So the two of them then got in this car, and, and what he found first was that a car had hit a man walking across the street, and he was dead. He was lying in the street at that point with blood all around him. So Brackage filmed that, and then lo and behold, after that he wanted to be in the hospital, so I got him into the hospital and went with him into the operating room, and he just took his film. He couldn't look out of his own eyes, but he took his film and filmed in the hospital room, and I was with him on that one. We were all dressed in these things, and that was quite something. And then he said, I would like now to go to the morgue. And I said, oh, we have this lovely man working at the morgue. <laughs> We'd all heard that for years, and he'd been there for years. That is Cyril Wecht, 
who became well known for his pathology work on high-profile cases like Elvis Presley, John F. Kennedy, and Kurt Cobain. So I took him to the morgue and we went in and of course there were the, these people who had already died with these things tied around their big toe. Oh, their, their identification name. tags, yeah. Yes. So he went in and here again he would not put his camera down. He just had to keep looking through it. And he talked with the man who was doing this, who really won him over and, you know, shot his film there. And it was amazing. And that's what came out these three different ways. The man killed on the road, the hospital, and the morgue. Sally was really supportive. She did as much as she could to get filmmakers access to locations where they wanted to film. She was a curator, but she was also a friend, and she brought their films to new audiences. Uh, so you were like almost like providing a studio experience yes. for them that they could You've try. Got it. You've got these it. Things. Absolutely. And you were the well, you were you were the runner of the artist colony because yeah. you were providing everything yeah. for them. Yeah. Which is extraordinary. And I would drive them, you know, and most of them stayed at my little house with me. Uh, the ones when when we became friends. But then I would drive them to different parts of the city that they wanted to see and film, if that was their wish. Right. So, so you we were curating it. Pittsburgh for them, and then you were curating their films for Pittsburgh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sounds like yes. It. A lot of filmmakers came to Pittsburgh. There are so many examples. Storm de Hirsch, Carolee Schneeman, and Roger Jacoby. Roger Jacoby, who was, I think, one of the filmmakers in yes. Pittsburgh, part of that group sitting on the floor watching films with you? Yes. On your little rug? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about Dream Sphinx opera that he made with you in yes, it? Yes, And of Undine? All right. Well, Roger Jacoby... You know, when he first uh, wanted to make a movie, this man that he was working with... Undine? Yes, exactly. He wanted the two of us to be in his film. So what he did, he found clothing that would make us look as if we were born decades ago. In other words, it wasn't current. So we were dressed like that, and then he took us out to the place that has all the, the, the growing things, the all the flowers. The Yes, we went to that place, and then we were both seated in there, and he told us just to go on talking and making love. And I said, <laughs> oh, well, all right. And so we did that, and he started filming us. And lo and behold, in came (laughs) all of these small children who had been taken out of school that day and taken to this wonderful place. And they were walking through and they were looking over at us as if, who in the world is this? And so they are also in the film, which makes it much more interesting. What's fun about it is you get the sense of discovering this new art form and just playing with it, playing endlessly with it and having a great time. (laughs) You've got it. He didn't want us to do particular things. He just dressed us up in a given way and then said, do it. And Undine was a Warhol star. Oh, they both were. They both were. Right. So that would have been an influence, I think, on this way of just letting it play out and see what You've happens, got it. I would think. You've yeah. got it. Yeah. Oh, there's also a really quick story about filmmaker Bruce Bailey. When you said Bruce Bailey a minute ago, I thought, I know what he did. He was amazing. He was an odd guy because every time he wanted to stay at my house, he wanted to go down and sleep in the basement. And I thought, <laughs> why would he want to go sleep? But he always wanted to go sleep in the basement. So he did. <laughs> he was... So Dave, I have to say the letters in the archive from this time are so cool. Artists were asking if they could come back to Pittsburgh. They loved Sally, and they missed the city when they left. Yeah, it seems like Sally really created a home for the avant-garde film community, sometimes literally. She was very much in the filmmaker's corner, 
advocating for the artists and pushing boundaries on their behalf. Yeah, and she showed some pretty risque stuff for the museum in the 1970s. There was, let's say, nudity, certainly a bit of non-mainstream behavior. Yeah, definitely not things you'd see in Hollywood films. Do you think the museum or audiences objected in any way? Well, uh, Ben O'Grodnick and I talked a little bit about that when we spoke. Sally Dixon turned Yoko Ono down, correct? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting thing. I mean, I, everyone has their um, their preferences, their prejudices. I am shocked. I don't know why Sally Dixon didn't invite Yoko Ono. That would have been amazing. You know, like like we can say now in 2021, that was a huge dropping the ball kind of moment. She did have Kiralee Schneeman come, though, which which was one of the maybe uh, missteps, you know, from a professional standpoint, because the people at the museum got really mad at Sally for doing that. The projectionist, I think, actually protested uh, screening the film Fuses, which, you know, shows sexual intercourse between Kiralee Schneeman and her uh, her partner at the time. But in Sally's interview, she said there were no objections. When you started showing films in Pittsburgh, speaking of censorship and so forth, did you ever run up against uh, people getting angry or or feeling that this was inappropriate work to be showing at the museum or anything? Never Never. heard it. Mm -hmm. I guess this may be a case where multiple things can be true, depending on one's position and perspective. Yeah. I guess that's often the case with oral histories. Time changes memory. It changes our perceptions of what happened. So Sally had an amazing career, but it was a short-lived career in Pittsburgh. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds like a conclusion, Ben. I'm I'm enjoying this story too much for it to end. She ran the film program from 1970 to 1975, and she brought national attention. There was a a news outlet called Museum News that said Sally Dixon's film section was like the leading museum film program. She was a advisor to the National Endowment of the Arts. Jonas Mikas, who was pretty much the leader of the experimental film movement in New York City, said that Sally Dixon was the most important organizer and promoter of experimental film in the early 70s. So she had astonishing recognition by her peers in this field, but because of perhaps sexist uh, gender bias within Carnegie Museum of Art, Sally Dixon herself and her female assistant, her curatorial assistant, Jean Tarbox, both were paid substantially less than their male counterparts in other uh, fine arts curatorial departments. I think there were a number of things around the 19, the middle of the 1970s that were, that were bugging Sally about working in this conservative art institution. But what really was a breaking point for her was the discovery that she was being paid substantially less than male curators whose departments didn't receive any acknowledgement or interest from the wider art world. So ultimately, in 1975, Sally Dixon left the museum. She went up to her boss, Leon Arcus, who was the uh, the president of Carnegie Museum of Art at the time, and she said, uh, you know, I resign. Wow, that seems abrupt. Yep. According to Sally, it happened just like that. She left as quickly as the film section got started. Sally was uh, was the leader. I mean, she was she was the the creative force. That is Charles Glassmeyer. I mean, I was kind of dumbfounded when I it was announced that she was leaving. I mean, nothing would have existed without Sally.
From 1970 to 1975, in addition to helping folks make some really cool movies, on a larger scale, what Sally did was make avant-garde film acceptable to institutions like museums. Yeah, before this time, film was not really collected by museums like it is today. You know, there are all these new institutions and organizations that are validating film as a legitimate art form, basically putting it on the same level as sculpture and painting. But she definitely had a number of rich donors who contributed to the um, first acquisitions that led to the film collection at the Carnegie Museum of Art. And we see this idea of validation play out when in 1974, the museum finished construction on its new home. And, and that's where the museum is right now? Yeah, right on Forbes Avenue. It included an official office for the film section and a big theater that sits around 200 people, which Sally basically had free reign over. Good morning. I have Stan and Jane Brackage with me this morning. The text of light is not only going to have its premiere here in Pittsburgh, but it's going to uh, celebrate or help us celebrate the opening of the new Museum of Art Theater in the Scaife Wing in three, three or four weeks. I'm not sure what our timing is. It'll be on... I spoke to Victor Grauer, who is a filmmaker and musician who moved to Pittsburgh in the early 1970s. He taught at the University of Pittsburgh, and he was part of the Pittsburgh-based community that was drawn to film section screenings. Sally screened Victor's film Angel Eyes in 1974. I screened Angel Eyes. I screened a uh, film that I made using Clorox, okay? And I dumped some Clorox onto Black Leader, and it ended up producing a very, very interesting, very dynamic uh, effect. And I projected that on a box made out of window screening. Victor and I had a really great conversation on the phone one day. Was there any issue with Sally's background, uh, her being on the museum's women's committee and you know, kind of having some privilege coming into it, working with all these filmmakers kind of struggling? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, personal connections are the way things are done, okay? <laughs> you just have to live with that. I mean, most, most things that, get, that happen in this country are done through personal connections. So that never particularly bothered me. And uh, there were people who every once in a while would make some kind of comment, you know, who were being kind of cynical about the whole thing. And uh, But uh, that, that never bothered me personally because uh, she worked very hard to get this going and it wasn't in her interest. I mean, personally, she was not a filmmaker. Uh, and so she did this out of the goodness of her heart because she thought it was an important development, and she was really into film, and she was very enthusiastic about film. So I never really had any reason to uh, be cynical about her personal connections, family connections. So her, she had a lot of important family connections that made it possible for her to do what she did. So as we've seen, Sally's connections allowed her to have a lot of freedom with the film section, and the community kind of took advantage of that. But the benefit was mutual. Sally really wanted to help filmmakers and artists. Many of them were her friends, and they relied on her. Yeah, Sally helped to connect the community with a major institution in Oakland, bringing funding, support, and recognition to a new art form. So here we are back in Oakland. Yeah, this feels like a sad story. Why is that? I mean, the film section is established. It's not like the museum shut it down after Sally left. This became one of the longest running museum film programs in the United States and drew visiting artists from all across the United States, later all around the world. People like Werner Herzog, people like Jean-Luc Godard, the famous French New Wave director. There were experimental animators that came through, like Suzanne Pitt. There were British feminist film theorists, like Laura Mulvey, that came through. Every month there would be new filmmakers. And this created this incredible concentration of energy and enthusiasm about uh, movies that tried to be like visual art, more so than 
replicating stories or structures from Hollywood. But I guess it's because we see this tension arise out of this triangular relationship between Sally and the film community and the museum. But was there tension? Well, Sally was gone, and not under the best circumstances. You know, not that she necessarily wanted to stay, but she probably wouldn't have left so quickly. There's some alternate timeline out there where if circumstances were different, Sally would have continued developing the program. But the community kept going. Yeah, but it was different. There weren't dinners at Sally's house or adventures with her around the city. Yeah, I guess no one was creeping around morgues filming dead bodies. (laughs) No. It was the end of an era. It was the end of the beginning. So what happened next? Oh, that's another good story. The film section continued, found new directions, and became a well-known Pittsburgh staple. And we start to see Oakland becoming this unlikely center for experimental art. Until, well, we'll save that for a future episode. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time, we'll look at another organization that meant a lot to the Steel City's outsider film community. It was called Pittsburgh Filmmakers, and Sally had a hand in that one, too. This episode was written by Catherine and Dave with help from Emily Davis. Dave made all the sounds, along with a little help from the bands Waterer and How Things Are Made. This episode includes excerpts from an interview with Sally Dixon, interviewed by Melinda Ward at Walker Art Center 2012. The interview is courtesy of Walker Art Center, Minneapolis. There are also excerpts from audio files from the Carnegie Museum of Art Department of Film and Video Archive. The Oral History Program is funded by the Weibel Foundation and other generous donors. If you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the Oral History Program at library.cmu.edu slash oralhistory. Also, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out on more stories about Steel City Outsiders and the institutional avant-garde. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think. See you next time.